I wish we could flip this room around so you could see what I see. It's quite extraordinary. Um, last night, Larry was talking in the beginning of his talk, after the beginning of his talk, about puncturing the romantic idea of, of uh, talking without notes. And I was thinking, I, I kind of chuckled, and I kind of wondered, is he talking to me? Because <laughs> that silence uh, before I started talking last time was waiting for my heart rate and my breath rate <laughs> to, to settle enough that I could get up on the wire. Um, so, <laughs> um, those of you who were here for the last talk, uh, some of you may not have been, um, I think I was only here for part of it, so. Uh, um, well, remember that I, I spoke about thinking and its impact on relationship. Uh, and um, how thinking uh, acts to fragment, uh, to pick a piece of the whole, uh, often tell a story about that. And we end up believing that the story told about that fragment is actually the truth of the whole. Um, And that thinking will uh, create a problem. Externally, there are no problems. Externally, there are challenges. Internally, there are challenges, for sure. Some of them quite steep. Problems are made by the system of thinking. Thinking creates a dilemma, a problem, if you will, by the stories that it tells. And then it sets out to solve that problem with the very tool that created the problem in the first place. Uh, And these examples have come up multiple times in the groups and in individual interviews. Um, My favorite, which I've also, and I tell this story because it's also happened to me, and I'm guessing that it's happened to a number of you as well. You, uh, the bell goes off in here at noon, right? Most of us, my guess is, have a certain reaction, particularly if we've walked by and smelled the aromas coming from, right, from the kitchen. Um, and things begin to unfold. Uh, not unlike, and I don't mean this derogatorily, but Pavlov's dog, right? Bing, salivate. At least I do. Um, and we, though, we get in line, and we, we may have ideas about what's right eating, what's the right amount to take. And, uh, you know, maybe we suffered a little bit in the afternoon sitting the day before because we overindulged. And then we get in line, and then there's the food. And uh, there's that bare perception in smelling, just smelling, seeing, just seeing. And then the thinking gets started. Well, I really should only take this much. Well, it's really good, and it's a long time till supper, and they probably won't serve this again on the retreat. So maybe I'll take a little extra. And you either get to the end of the line and sit down and you look at your plate and you feel like you've cheated yourself 
or there's no way I can eat this. And then the criticism starts. I did this again. Why did I do this? I'm, you know, I'm wasting. This is stealing. I'm violating the precept. Yeah. Now take a look at what's happened here. Thinking has, has won part of the argument with itself about taking too much or too little. Right? Now it's judging itself for following its own advice. Crazy, right? Yeah, crazy. Suffering emerges out of that, and it, that's like uh, pedestrian craziness. Right? We're all infected with it. Every, every human being. And, and we often don't see it. And so it's working this mischief all the time. Um, so, thinking, its impact on relationship. Very hard to be in relationship with whatever's going on in the present moment if I'm actually in relationship to, with my stories about the present moment. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of friends who are Zen teachers who have blogs, and once in a while I, I take a look at them, and I came across a book uh, called um, Absolute Delusion, Perfect Buddhahood. And it's by a, a Buddhist studies scholar at Smith College, I think. Uh, and it's about a 17th century uh, sect in China, a Buddhist sect in China, that were apparently quite, quite rigorous in terms of following uh, the, the monastic code and the lay people that were involved with them, and there were quite, quite large numbers of lay people involved with them, also very rigorous about following the lay precepts. They had the typical array of, of Buddhist contemplative practices. Um, and they were led by this charismatic uh, figure named Xin Xing, uh, who took a very unusual approach uh, to uh, an inclusionary practice. Now, having a practice that's truly inclusionary is a challenge that we all bump up against all the time. We all have these re- reflexive uh, pinch points or cutoff points, right? For example, I can't, you know, there's, there's just too much welling up. I'm not going to be able to handle it, right? And we cut off. Or I, re- I really can't hear you saying another word. Could be about one of us, you know. I can't listen to this talk anymore, right? And there's a cutoff, right? It happens frequently. And it happens based on aversion, on fear, on all kinds of things. But we spend a lot of time, or much happens around us, our lives shutting down in reaction to these cutoff points. It's, it's not unlike if you're drinking from a straw and somebody comes along and pinches the straw, right? And you, it's just so much harder to get liquid out. And then they cut it out and you try and blow it, right? And then they all of a sudden let it go and there's a mess everywhere. The cutoff points work like that, right? And the struggle and the tightness that occur around them have consequences. So how do we uh, have a practice that's truly inclusionary? Uh, We have major challenges around that. Uh, For me, um, if I turn on the news and Mitch McConnell shows up, 
I'm at my pinch point. Okay. I mean, big time. Um, and his counterpart, I can't, John Boehner. <laughs> uh, and this is, not, this is not about them, right? This is, this is about me. And that, that tightening down. And sometimes it's quite remarkable. I mean, I've gone through periods where I have to turn the TV off. It's that dramatic for me. Um, arguments around gun control, a real pinch point for me. How do I include people who are advocating, making available things that kill children by the thousands? How do I include them in my practice? How do I include someone who I feel betrayed by in my practice? How do I include the internal states that come up in me if I betrayed someone or really hurt somebody? How does that get included in our practice? Um, so it's a, it's, and we all confront this, uh, often at a more minor level, sometimes quite dramatically. So this sect was called the Three Stages or Three Levels sect. And it's based on uh, his idea that human beings uh, have gone through three periods in terms of their ability to understand and access and use the Dharma to become free. Uh, in the first stage, uh, they get it right away. You know, it's the, it's the story about 500 people listened to a Dharma talk by the Buddha and there were 500 arhats on the spot. Right? It's cool. I'd love to see it. Um, that's the first stage. Second stage is human beings are moderately deluded. Right? They, have, they hold some wrong views. They keep the precepts pretty well. And it requires a different kind of teaching, a skillful means, to address these folks. They're, they're a little more difficult to reach. Okay. The third stage um, is uh, the stage where people are so, so deluded, so stupid, so misled by their own thinking, so confused. No hope. No hope. And the kinds of characteristics that he uses to describe these folks in his time were uh, fighting over doctrine, bias and prejudice, irrational conflict. And I'm thinking, wow, the guy's predicting the U.S. Congress. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, So, you know... one of the things that's, that's both reassuring and I, I find rather disheartening is that this level of human dysfunction, confusion, delusion, is not uh, unique to our current situation. Uh, and so it also has a certain amount of momentum to it. So what he said was that because human beings are so confused and so misled by their own confused thinking. They literally cannot distinguish the true from the false. They can't distinguish true teachings from false teachings. They can't distinguish true teachers from false teachers. So given that that's the case, you know, you could say, well, okay, then everything's false. They flipped it to say everything's true and everyone is Buddha. 
And they came up with this idea of taking refuge in evil Buddhas. Now, if that doesn't give your head a bit of a tweak at this point, you're not paying attention. (laughs) Evil Buddha? What's an evil Buddha? What is an evil Buddha? Um, (laughs) Refuge, traditionally, right, is something we go to that's safe, secure, uh, has a certain amount of uh, not predictability, but reliability in a certain way. You know, that, that we can trust it to uh, protect us. Protect us. And it's an interesting exercise to look at what we often, in fact, take refuge in. Uh, I go to anxiety for my refuge. <laughs> For the 475,000th time, (laughs) I go to being pissed off for my refuge. (laughs) I go to overeating for my refuge. I go to over... Right? I mean, the the things that we actually go to for our refuge. Uh, And to make that a practice, to really acknowledge that. Oh, look what I'm going to refuge for now. Often, I think, we, we almost have to, to be clear on that before we can actually approach uh, in, a, in, a, in a more or less transformed or, or level way the, the triple gem. You know, Buddha, awakening, Dharma, the teachings about the reality of how life operates, and Sangha, the community of folks who are here showing up for each other to do this extremely challenging work together and the way we've come to depend on each other for that. Um, They propose something very, very different. And by doing that, what they're saying is we have to include everything. If we have to include the most evil, vile, disgusting, frightening, awful parts of life. Or at least what our thinking says are the evil, vile, disgusting, awful, frightening parts of life. It's not to say that there are not things out there that are vicious, that will kill us and other people, that result in Horrible, horrible uh, things being done to other human beings and not just human beings. I mean, not only are we the only species on the planet that hunts itself for sport, we're the only species that hunts everything else on the planet for sport. How do I include that in my practice? So... How, what they're saying is, if, if it shows up, it's my life. Whatever shows up in this moment is life. I'm in relationship to it. In some ways, we rise together. If this doesn't exist, that doesn't exist, and vice versa. So I'm in relationship in one way or another to every arising moment. 
And if evil arises, this is my life. I didn't order it. And hopefully with wisdom and some strength and compassion, I will be able to relate to it in a skillful way. But it's not my job to decide whether it has a right to be here or not. It's life. And if I start to say, if I become judge, jury, and executioner on everything that shows up in my life, basing that on the kind of very confused thinking, refer back to what I was saying at the beginning of the talk, how thinking operates. Now I'm going to rely on that to be judge, jury, and executioner of what shows up if I don't like it or I think it shouldn't be here. We're going to do an awful lot of damage. And we're going to live a pretty thinned out life. Because life doesn't care whether it registers on us as pleasant or unpleasant. Whether we think it ought to be there or not. It just keeps showing up exactly as it is. And so do we. So their, their uh, approach to this is, how, how do I relate to this? That the only, the only thing that then is reliable for refuge, if I take the present moment as my refuge, the only way to meet this is to meet the essence of life. And they make this distinction between the essence of life and the manifestations of that life. And there you begin to see the emergence of evil Buddha. Buddha, evil, angry. You know, evil may be a little extreme for you. How about angry Buddha? How about abusive Buddha? How about frightened Buddha? But whatever arises as 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 a manifestation of life, it's connected to its source. As Larry was talking about, you know, we call the source the deathless. We call it the unborn. We call it uh, the unconditioned. It's life. It's life. This is it. You know, words like unconditioned and Buddha mind and unborn, and you know, it can easily give us an idea that it's something to get. Oh, I'm going to come to rest in the unborn. Right? If I just, you know, if I just do the right practices, if I follow all the instructions here, I will, I will find myself resting in the unconditioned. Well, maybe, maybe you're already, maybe we're already resting in it and are missing it, and just don't know it. And if we take life as being the deathless, that's always happening always happening in this moment. You can't get a hold of it. You can't grab it. But would anybody in this room deny you're not here? And is any any of us, any of us have any less of that life? Does anybody have less of that life? No matter how horribly 
they're behaving. No matter what sort of awful things that I may be doing or have done, do I have any less of that life? I I don't see that that's possible. Life doesn't operate in more or less, or there's some over here and there's not more of it over there. It just, I don't know know how you all see that, but I, I just don't see that there's less life here or more life there. I mean, I have it, you have it, we have it, that has it, that has it, cats and dogs have it, chipmunks have it, spiders have it. They have it in, we, it all is there in equal abundance. It's manifestation, quite unique, sometimes extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, I, I, I come in here and I sit the first sitting in the morning and I look out and I see this is extraordinary beauty. And sometimes it shows up in very different ways. I'm not saying you all have shown up in different ways. In that, but we all, we always show up differently, right? Sometimes we show up and we're filled with tears. Sometimes we're filled with joy. Sometimes we're really ticked off. Sometimes we're really, really hurt. The unique manifestation that shows up in the moment is truly unique. Never been here before, never to be repeated. And the life that that is resting on, rooted in, is is a part of like the, the wave in the ocean. That ocean is not... There's, there's just no less of that in any individual manifestation. So, if we want to live a life of wholeness, or, or at least beginning to open into that wholeness, we have to have a way to continuously see where the mind cuts that off, pinches it off, We have to know where our cutoff points are, those pinch-off points are. That doesn't mean we get in there with, you know, like vice grips and pull it apart. That's violent. We do what we've been encouraging each other to do, which is to allow the light of awareness to reflect that. And everyone that I've talked to so far, individually or in groups, has experienced the melting of the ice in the warmth of that awareness. It's just palpable. And every one of you that I've met have described that in one way or another. You know, that there's, you, we come in with this you know, chunk of ice and it begins to melt. And it, I don't try, I don't say, oh, I'm going to melt me as ice. And we're almost always surprised by it and sometimes even a little scared by it. You know, that the melting is like, wow, I'm not doing this. Oh, my God, what's happening? Which is a completely normal reaction. It's not what we expect, but life is not what we expect. It not only can't be figured out, it's never what we really expect, really. So this, this kind of opening happens in this light of awareness. Now, when you think about uh, relating to this mixture that all of life is. 
that you know thinking is is takes event X and says this is a terrible thing. This is a terrible thing. Uh, this parent is abusing this child. Terrible thing. Do we just say, oh well, they're both Buddha. They're both you know their sources in you know life. They're a manifestation of life itself. Right? That just sounds stupid, right? And completely unfeeling. Our reaction is also part of that. But if it's a reaction that comes from judgment, uh, a, a story that says, no, this, this should not happen. Look, when we're confronted with violence, when we're confronted with, with damaging relationships, we know that. There's a knowing of that. Sometimes it can take a long time for our our, uh, behavior to catch up with our understanding. That's often the case. You know, as as, uh, one of my teachers said, getting some understanding is not that difficult. It's really not that difficult. It's living that understanding where, where the rubber meets the road. You know, and sometimes you get the smell of burnt rubber. It's, it's a really challenging thing. So what we've been uh, trying to convey is this awareness, this resting in awareness, which you, know, you will move in and out of. You know, I've, I had a note from someone recently about, well, we opened up the field, and they're feeling kind of wobbly. You know? And uh, yeah, sure. I mean, we're asking those of you who've not heard these instructions before, and they're very new, if you haven't practiced with them, it'll, you may feel a little wobbly. You know, it may be a little uncomfortable. You know, we're asking you to begin to let go of a refuge that's a whole lot better for us than many other refuges we take. Because just the refuge of breath, body, and using that to watch what's coming up is a powerful refuge. As Larry said, it can take you the whole way, whatever that, that means. Uh, and I, I, the, It will take you the whole way into being here right now completely, moment by moment. And that's wonderful. And as we open that up, we find something that's even more reliable as a refuge. Something that is always there. And that's awareness. It takes no effort. And we think, right? We think, oh, this is something I'm going to do. And it's common. What's your practice? I do choiceless awareness. Okay. Um, uh, I do choiceless awareness. And and that's perfectly understandable because the mind's conditioned to this idea that, okay, I'm going to use this as a tool just like I've used everything else as a tool. I'm going to bring my same mindset to this as I brought to everything else. I'm going to try and use it to fix my life. Or maybe I'll fix your life. (laughs) And then I'll fix my life. <laughs> no, no. 
this is about really not doing. Uh, as, as we're sitting here, uh, seeing is happening. You're not saying, oh, I'm, I'm seeing. I'm doing the seeing. Mm-hmm. Seeing is happening. Hearing is happening. Hearing is happening. And you have, it takes no effort at all to know the difference between that and the sound of this voice simultaneously. You won't get confused by that. That takes no effort at all. That, it's choiceless awareness. You can, I mean, it, we use that as a word. It's kind of a pointer. And, and the danger is you get, oh, that's a pretty cool pointer, you know. And, and, you, and you lose track of how easy this is. You don't have to do a thing. But you do have to learn how to be alert to it. And it's not like, okay, everything's happening. I'm cool. You know, he rings the bell. I know the difference between the bell and the voice. Yeah, okay. Uh, and for this, I paid hundreds of dollars and I've been putting myself through this, right? Great. Wait till I go home and tell my friends what I did. Uh, no, this takes, because there's so much conditioning there. There's so much conditioning. And we're so accustomed to a fix-it mentality, which really, up to a certain point, most of us really need. Okay? I mean, I look back over the course of my life, and I'm, I think, wow, I wish somebody would have gotten a hold of that guy earlier. And, you know, and sat him down and done some fix-up work with this guy. Right? So it takes work. It takes really diligent effort to observe our life. I mean, really, really observe our life. It takes a strong stomach to watch what we really take refuge in a lot of the time. And it takes a strong stomach to watch the stories that the mind creates and then puts over on somebody else. That's a kind of killing of life. And that, you know, when, when we see that that's going on over here, that can be pretty humbling. So this takes real effort. And at some point, we begin to play around the edge of efforting continues the cycle. And what we're encouraging you to do is to begin to be a little playful with awareness. It reflects choicelessly. Okay? The spider comes across. The scorpion comes across. The angry thought comes across. It's all reflected choicelessly. And you don't have to think a lot about what to do if the scorpion starts to make a turn and come up the stairs, you know, and the body knows how to take care of itself. The problem is the mind confuses that scorpion with that little spider that's going down the road. It takes a lot of work to distinguish that because the mind is very powerful about distorting that. And all of that is continuously reflected. As the thinking begins to settle down, not because we try and stop it, 
but because it gets reflected in the awareness enough, the mind kind of catches on, this is a dead-end road. And if nothing else, having seen it 50,000 to 10 million times, it's like, yeah, this is pretty boring. This is just pretty boring. And it begins to settle, and things begin to drop away. And more and more, this becomes a natural practice. It's more natural than you know right now already. That's why we often talk about being aware of these moments of spontaneously waking up. Right? You're, in, you're lost in the Disneyland of thought. Right? Or maybe what's uh, the Vampire Diaries of thought. I know some kids that watch the Vampire Diaries, right? Awful stuff. Uh, and so whatever, whatever thought realm we're lost in, it's not possible to stay there. There's pop. You just, you just wake up out of it. Awakening happens. And in that moment, everything is just as it is. There's no more, no less. It's absolutely perfect. And the more we can live from that place, we find the fewer messes that we're making and the freer we're living. And those pinch points, they become less frequent. They become less reactive because it's a reflex. You know, something comes along and hits the, hits the knee, the, the leg jerks. It's a reflex. That begins to slow down. It doesn't mean that this stuff goes away. Okay? Here are all kinds of stories about, okay, there was this great enlightenment and whatever, and I guess they lived happily ever after. I don't know. You never, you never read about what happens after that. Right? Uh, you know, what happened when they went home and their, you know, their food wasn't ready or you know, their, their partner had left them or you know, whatever. Um, those things continue to happen. And life is always presenting new challenges, so it's always that edge of learning. This is, a, this is not a program where we get a graduate degree and then we get tenure and then we're like set... <laughs> Right? Yeah, maybe we don't show up to a class now and then, or we kind of mail in a paper or whatever, but we got the tenure, so we're good. No, it's like we get tested. I don't care how long we've been at this. It's irrelevant. We're constantly tested by the fact that this moment has never, ever shown up before, and there's no template for it. That's why we, over you know, practice, we learn to rest in the wisdom of this awareness that simply reflects. And it may reflect the of the mind, too. But then that just simply becomes part of the present that's reflected in the mirror. And that peters out pretty quickly, and then what we're left with is this. And wise action emerges out of that clarity. It's very different than, than action you know, that emerges out of, I really think you ought to be doing this. Because I, I really know what your life should look like. Or even, I think I should be doing this. Because I really know what my life is. Right? I'm the expert on my life. Not so much. However, there's an intelligence here. And that intelligence is awareness. And that's always available. 
and we come to recognize it more and more. And so this question of evil Buddha, good Buddha, it falls away. It falls away. And then there's life presenting itself and life meeting itself. You know, in some ways, I think the most we can say about this practice as it moves along, it's simply life aware of itself. And that's the intimacy. That's the real intimacy of this practice. That it's simply life living itself out in awareness. That's all. It's very simple. And um, as I said last time, the it was actually, it was, this, uh, it, was, it was called Bird Nest Roshi. He spent a lot of time in a tree, and a student comes along and says, so what's the most essential teaching? He looks down on him and says, do good only and not do any evil. And I says, everybody knows that. It takes a lifetime to practice it, moment by moment by moment. And so this is a practice that we're always growing into, and life is teaching us exactly how to do it. And it's pretty, pretty amazing that, that that's what we've all come here to do, whether we knew it or not. It's, it's to me, it's, yeah, it's amazing. So let's sit together for a minute or two. May we cultivate the intention and use these moments of spontaneous awakening and our dedicated practice to return again and again to our life, the only place we can find it, the only place we can live it, the only place we can find true and reliable refuge present moment, only moment. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.